kind of a chilly morning out there. Good Lord's Day to come inside in the warmth and worship Him. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Chapter 1. As you can see, we've kind of flipped the service a little bit this morning. We're starting with the preaching first, and we're going to respond to God in, in song later. And so, open up to the Gospel of Mark. Back in God's holy word again today, as we join on this, uh, this voyage together through the Gospel of, of Mark, following Jesus in his footsteps, uh, we're about to meet him in this book, and it's exciting, and we are excited for that. Last week, we studied verses 2 to 8 in chapter 1, and uh, we've seen Mark uh, looking forward to the arrival of Christ. He was showing us John the Baptist, but looking forward to the arrival of the greater one, he showed us about this man named John, this, this man wearing a, a hairy jacket, a hairy cloak, and a leather belt, a man that uh, would have had a honey and uh, locust-smelling kind of a breath. But he was pointing forward. He was pointing forward to somebody greater. The, the people looked at John, and, and although he was a rather strange-looking guy, he was definitely a prophet. He was prophetic in every way. He was the final and greatest prophet, but there was one that was greater. John was this messenger that was crying in the wilderness, right? He was foretold, he was a prophet, and he was the forerunning messenger before Christ. He was pointing forward to a foremost Savior. So last week, as we looked at these aspects of, of John's life and his message and baptism and his pointing forward to the one that would baptize you with the Holy Spirit, uh, we learned that that would give us assurance of our own faith, looking back at how the Old Testament proclaims the good news. Throughout the whole Bible, we see the good news pointing to this day. So that would affirm our faith in God's plan of salvation from, from day one. And it also showed us, and through baptism, our need of repentance. You know, John was baptizing people. Christ had not come yet, but this baptism was pointing forward to Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he brings, which is regeneration of the heart. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you are truly born again, when you are saved. That's the point of conversion. And so we look at that and we see that repentance had to be at the center of our message and regeneration is the only way to believe. So John the Baptist was a gift of grace to us, a gift to God's people, showing them in their darkness and sin that they can have hope, that there was a Savior coming that would baptize them with the Holy Spirit who would finally fully save them from their sins, save us from our sins. And so then today we get to jump into verses 9 to 13, where we're going to get this, this, this privilege yet again to now look upon the face of Jesus Christ through Scripture. That we no longer need to be looking at the horizon as they were, waiting for the Christ to come. We get to see him. He's, he's on the horizon today. He's there. We see him, and we see him clearly. We see the promise clearly. We see the Messiah. He is here. He has come. It's no longer about to get real. It is real. He is real. He is our long-awaited Savior. And today the Lord is going to show us through the words of Mark three 
critical aspects of Christ's identity. Three critical aspects of Christ's identity that have eternal implications for us. Eternal implications for us. And so we're excited to jump into God's word and and ask him to show us this. So let's ask him right now. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you. We know that by Christ's sacrifice, by his blood, that we boldly enter the throne room of grace and find mercy, that we have access to you through his work, his finished work on the cross for us. And so in that, Lord, we, we want to walk in you. As we look at the gospel of Mark, we, we want to respond to Jesus' words, follow me. Lord, would you, would you create that inside of us? Last week, we learned that repentance has to be at the center and regeneration of the heart. This work done by the Holy Spirit has to produce that faith in us. And so we ask you to do that. Continue to work out salvation in us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is always with us, that he has filled us on the day of our own spiritual baptism, and that he never leaves us. Lord, we know that by our sin, we can can suppress him, we can grieve him. So Lord, we pray that we would come in repentance and faith today, and that your spirit would fill us fully today, revealing your word to us, convicting us in our hearts and producing great joy in what you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, just slide your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you one, but I see most of you have yours with you. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Let's take a look. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, there's quite a, quite a bit going on in those verses there, as you can see. Uh, John Mark reporting in his short and punchy style, right? He's, he's hitting the mountaintops here. He's got a lot jammed into this little section. Remember, Mark is, is no nonsense. He's, he's no fluff. It's all peaks, and he jams so much into these few little verses, And we see here, as he's reporting, remember, he is reporting what he has heard from Peter regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as we just read, we notice that unlike the other gospels, Mark doesn't start with Christ's genealogy, right, like in Matthew and and Luke. He doesn't share the story of the virgin birth. He doesn't share the story of the the wise men and uh, the escape of Herod. He leaves all those details for the other gospel writers. One of the beautiful things about the gospels is that you get to see the gospel from all these different angles. But Mark is focused on what he is trying to share with us here. 
He simply and immediately starts the history and the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying, in those days, that's the days that John was baptizing in the wilderness, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so what we're going to see in this, in this first section is this first critical aspect of Christ's identity that should eternally matter to us. It has eternal ramifications, and it is this. Jesus is so humbly human. He identifies with me. Jesus is so humbly human. He identifies with me. So at the same time that we see John here baptizing thousands of Jews in the Jordan River, preparing the way for the Lord, Jesus just appears among these thousands of people who are traveling from Judea and Jerusalem. But it says that he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth of Galilee, a very insignificant town. Uh, if you look at the map, I think we have a map up there. Nazareth is about uh, a 70-kilometer walk from the Jordan. So that would be this red line. There's Nazareth, and the Jordan is just south of, of Bethany. That's where they believe uh, John was baptizing people. A 70-kilometer walk, that would be equivalent to like going from Okotoks to Airdrie. Okay? And so uh, he's traveling this way by foot, and he came to be baptized by John. So there should be two questions really kind of coming to mind for you as you read this. Some significant questions. The first one would be, well, Jesus' hometown. Okay, we'll be looking at that. But another question, why in the world is Jesus being baptized? Why is he being baptized? And so we're going to look at these two details right now. Um, they are incredibly significant. These things are very significant to Christ's identity. They speak loudly about his character, about God's character. So let's first deal with this town of Nazareth. Why is Nazareth so important? Well, Nazareth was not important. That's, that's why it's important. It was not important. It was insignificant. Now, most of you know that our family doesn't come from Calgary. We're, we weren't born and raised in Calgary. We were born and raised in, in northern British Columbia in a small town called Fort St. John. Now, anybody here hear of Fort St. John? If, not from me, but before you heard that from me, you've heard of Fort St. John. I think I see, okay, maybe eight hands. Now, who has actually been to Fort St. John? Oh, that's not too bad. I was expecting worse. But anyways, that town is, it's an insignificant town. And it's actually a pretty vital town for Calgary. It's where a lot of oil and gas takes place, but not a lot of people have been there. Fort St. John is not a destination city, right? You're not going to Expedia and looking for, how am I going to spend two weeks in Fort St. John? It's just not the place. I love my hometown, but it's not a destination. And we see that all over the prairies. We see the, the prairies dotted with small towns, insignificant towns, towns that are seemingly unimportant, and they are unknown. And so when you think of the town of Nazareth of Galilee, you need to know that Jesus' town was similar. It was insignificant. Nazareth was very small. It was an obscure village. It was about 20 kilometers west of the Sea of Galilee, 30 kilometers east of the Mediterranean, and it was about 100 kilometers north of Jerusalem. It was really in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't a major trading hub. It was more like a farming community. 
Um, it was really off the beaten path. It wasn't on a major trade route. Um, Nazareth was not mentioned in the Old Testament. And also uh, with some historians, the, the famous historian Josephus in the Jewish histories, uh, Nazareth is not mentioned in his histories either. It was a dead end kind of a town. In fact, that whole area of Galilee was often despised by the Judeans. And then within Galilee, Nazareth was a despised community. They would have looked down upon it. Actually, even one of Jesus' disciples said in the future, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was insignificant. In fact, it was probably one of the most insignificant villages in all the area. So let me ask you this. Why in the world, out of all the places that God could choose to make the hometown of our Lord and Savior, ask yourself, why in the world would he choose Nazareth? Why would he choose Nazareth? So if you were God, is this the way that you would have done it? Would you have chosen just this dusty, unknown village? Would you have chosen a dead-end town for the Lord and Savior to grow up and, and to come from? Especially when his holy city, Jerusalem, is 100 kilometers away. Why wouldn't have God chose Jerusalem, the city of David, the center of Jewish religion, the place where his temple is? Surely that would have made a lot more sense. That's probably what I would have chose. Just think about the fact that Scripture has been prophesying that there would be a coming king. Shouldn't he be born in a palace? So what's God showing us here by having Jesus come from Nazareth? We know he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in, in Nazareth. What's he revealing about his reproach and how he comes to save his people, his plan of redemption? God is showing us that the way up is the way down. Humility is at the center. The God of the universe condescended to us. He came down. He put on human flesh. He chose not the pomp and the beauty and the splendor of the world. He chose what was basic, what was humble, what was lowly. He, he chose to put Jesus there, a man from a despised people, from a despised place. Jesus is so humbly human. And this will be his consistent approach throughout his whole life, throughout his whole ministry. And we also see that in his baptism, another identity point of his humility is that he was baptized, it says, by John in the Jordan. So along with all of these thousands of people, Jesus comes out to be baptized along with the message that John is preaching as a sign of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so again, that question should be rattling around. Why in the world is Jesus being baptized? In verse 1, Mark already showed us in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he said that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Why does the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the one who John says is greater than he, the one who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit, why is he being baptized? Even John himself, John the Baptist, struggled with this idea. In fact, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's recollection of this John tried to refuse Jesus' request to be baptized. 
Matthew 3, 14 to 15, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? He's basically saying, this is backwards. This is not right. I can't baptize you. You are the greater one. I need your baptism. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, or let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And so, friends, it really comes down again to the humble humanity of Christ. Jesus has existed for all eternity before this. But he came to us as a human, as ourselves. Jesus was not a supernatural vision. He was not a magic trick. Jesus was real. He was bone and flesh, just like you and me. And his baptism fulfills all righteousness. What does that mean? It's because he came to live the life that we are all given. But he lived it with absolute righteousness and obedience to the will of the Father. And he came to identify with you and me as human. Jesus experienced the same things that you and I experience that everybody throughout history has experienced. He would have experienced temptation and sadness and pain and suffering. And his obedience to John's baptism, remember, it wasn't for his own repentance. It wasn't for his own confession and forgiveness. Jesus is God. He was sinless. So what is his baptism pointing to? His baptism His own baptism points forward to his own death and resurrection. We know, standing on this side of history, that he was punished on the cross for our sins. His baptism foreshadows his own death and his own burial and his own resurrection for the repentance and for the forgiveness of sins for those who would believe. That's why he was baptized. That he would be the first man to be raised from the dead, raised to new life, and millions would follow in his footsteps. Jesus is so humbly human for us. He identifies with you and me. He has everlasting sympathy and empathy towards his people. And this is so crucial for us to understand. God didn't just snap his fingers in heaven and save you. Work had to be done. Your God did much more than that. He was so full of grace and love and compassion towards you that he sent himself, that he sent his son, that he put on flesh for eternity for you. Jesus is still in his human body. It's a glorified body, but he put on flesh for eternity for you to fulfill all righteousness, to be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect because we could not do it. We couldn't do it. We can't save ourselves. We can't live this life without sin, but Jesus did. And he did it for you, and he did it so humbly, so sacrificially, so uniquely. Hebrews 4.15 gives us a great insight into this. 
and says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus identified with us. He is humbly human. He identifies with my pain, with your pain, with suffering, with heartache, with loss. I think of us dealing with family who has passed on, who has died. And I think of Jesus himself weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus. He experienced these things. His human body was also pierced and torn for you. He would have felt all of that. He's so humbly human. So even in Mark's short, punchy style, we see the humanity of our Savior. He is 100% human. And he is so humbly human, he identifies with us. But that's not all he is. And as if that wasn't enough... In his baptism, we're also going to see that Jesus is powerfully God. He is so powerfully God. He astonishes me. He astonishes you. He should. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, Mark's favorite word here again, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What an astonishing contrast. This man from this nowhere village. And now we see the heights of heaven. The whole nature of God on display. Have you ever tried to envision what's happening here? Just picture Jesus being plunged into the depths of the river in the hands of John. In the hands of this strange and prophetic man. And as he lifts the Son of God out of the water, the heavens, the sky, the dimension between the world and God's very presence splits wide open. The Greek word being used here for tearing and splitting is schizo. It's a violent word. It's the same word used for how the curtain is torn in the temple when Jesus died. The skies would have cracked louder than any thunder you have ever heard. It's like the language used by the prophet Isaiah in 64.1. Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Such power, such authority, such a violent, arresting moment. And yet it is followed by such a sweet, peaceful display of God's glory. It says that he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending upon him like a dove. Can you imagine that? Can you comprehend that? I think if I was there, I would be flat on the ground with my head buried in the dirt, scared. That would have been the expectation of something like this. But instead, we see a gentle, peaceful, graceful revelation of the Holy Spirit coming down. 
and resting upon the wet face of our Savior. This should be mind-blowing. This should be awe-inspiring. This is unbelievable. This is the moment that all of history has been waiting for. He is here. He is real. And God's Spirit is upon him, anointing him. Isaiah prophesied about this. In Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That time is here and it's fulfilled in Jesus. What we're witnessing here is the powerful anointing and commissioning of Jesus Christ into his ministry. We see this lowly-looking man from a lowly town, and he has the very Spirit of God coming down and resting upon him. The Spirit that joins him for the work ahead. And then more than that, all of a sudden, after we've seen the skies tear open and the Spirit come down, this peaceful anointing, we hear a voice A voice come from heaven. God the Father's voice proclaiming, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Did you just see that? Did you just see what God showed us here? God just showed us himself. He powerfully shows us all of himself here. All of him. We see Jesus, the Son of God. We see the Holy Spirit of God. And then we see the voice of God the Father. All three approving and proclaiming that he is well pleased in Jesus, his Son. This is one of those concepts of our faith, this idea of of the Trinity. It's one of those things that is incomprehensible by the human mind, But we see the Trinity on full display here. This is one of those places you need to take your friends to and show them. It's one of those things that we need to believe because it is written, not because we can wrap our minds around it. Friends, these are things of heaven. These are high and heavenly concepts, something we will never fully understand while we are here. It's something that we have to apprehend, even though we don't comprehend it. That there is only one God. We see that through all the Old Testament. And yet there is three persons. What we do need to stop doing is trying to explain this by some kind of illustration. Some kind of earthly illustrations, they all fall short. Jesus, this Trinity is not like an egg. It's not like the shell, the yolk, the egg white. Stop doing that. It's not like water. Right? It's not like water when it's frozen, it's ice. When it's water, it's liquid. And, and when it's heated up, it's steam. That is not true. In fact, that leads people away from the true Trinitarian understanding. If you follow that understanding, that's what's called modalism, that God can only be in one mode at one time. Wayne Grudem says, So what analogy shall we use to teach the Trinity? He says, It is best to conclude that no analogy 
adequately teaches about the Trinity. And all are misleading in significant ways. In one sense, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that we will never be able to understand fully. However, we can understand something of its truth by summarizing the teaching of Scripture in three statements. Number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there is one God. It's as simple as that. We're not going to fully understand it here. So stop trying to illustrate it with worldly concepts. Nothing can come close to the heavenly truth of who God is. He is God in three persons. We see in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8.4, there is no God but one. But yet over and over again, we also see that within himself, God speaks of himself in the plural form. Genesis 1.26, start of the Bible, this is creation. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. In Isaiah 6.4, when the Lord commissions Isaiah as a messenger, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? You see, even in that one sentence, a singularity and a plurality. One God, three persons. And we see this in many other places as well. We also see this in the Gospels. With the event of the baptism of Jesus, they record Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so without going further into an in-depth study of the Trinity, what we need to see here is that God is a Trinity. And so this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this lowly-looking man, he is so powerfully God. He is so powerfully God. And that should astonish us. It astonished John the Baptist. It would have astonished the crowds around him, the Galilean people. This man from the wrong side of the tracks, he is powerfully and magnificently proclaimed by the voice of God as his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. He's more important than all of the figures in the Old Testament, all of the prophets, all of the kings. He is the beloved son of God. He is the only one, and the Lord is fully pleased with him. This is astonishing. It should astonish us. And so let me ask you, today, is Jesus astonishing to you? Is the reality of Christ mind-blowing to you? Is he incredible? Does he excite you? He should. Or are we bored with our faith? Or do the things of the world excite me more than Jesus Christ? Are you delighting perhaps in ungodly things that steal the affections you need to be having for Jesus Christ, the greatest reality ever? You know, we, we spend a lot of time in church talking about sin, and that's good. Fighting sin, putting off the old man, taking those radical steps necessary to keep ourselves from sin and temptation, and we should. That's crucial. That should be 
an ongoing part of our Christian walk. But we sometimes miss the other half of putting on Christ. And we forget that what really seals the deal is when our eyes are captivated by our glorious Savior. When it comes to to looking for true victory, you can know that you have arrived at a place of victory when you no longer desire that old sin, but you desire the Savior. You desire His presence, His face, that you are in awe of Him, that you are astonished and amazed at the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. If you've read John Piper, you you know what he always says about this topic. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so are we astonished? Do we want to join the crowd that is standing next to Christ when all this takes place and be astonished? We need to be astonished again. And so chase the Lord, continually be astonished by who he is. And this is just, this is a massive example of that. But Jesus is so powerfully God. He astonishes me. And so as this humble Galilean is lifted from the waters, and he is powerfully anointed, as he is exalted as God himself, we see in the next two verses that Jesus is so victoriously triumphant. He prevails for me. Jesus is so victoriously triumphant. He prevails for me. Verse 12, the Spirit, and Mark says it again, immediately, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And so again, we see Mark's urgency. This message encapsulated in just a few sentences. It's so urgent. He says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So if you look at that map again that we had there, you'll see that uh, the other colored line, the, the green line, is most likely where Jesus would have went. That's a rough and tough, hilly, desolate wilderness. Nobody wanted to go there. But the Spirit drives him there. And he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. 40 days. So what an interesting concept or contrast that we have going on here. First, we see the Spirit coming down upon Jesus in gentleness and peace like a dove. But now we see the Holy Spirit driving him out to the desert to be tempted by Satan. There's so much to be seen here. Much significance. The first significant thing to notice is the fact that it wasn't Satan who drove him out into the wilderness. It was the Spirit. Now that Jesus was spiritually commissioned for the mission ahead, God sovereignly and intentionally shows the world, shows all of the universe, all of the spiritual realm, that nothing will stop Jesus on his mission. Now the other Gospels fill in some of these details for us here. Mark is pretty short on this. 
They would say that Jesus fasted and he ate nothing for those 40 days. That Satan would have tempted him to turn rocks into bread. That uh, Satan also transported Jesus to the top of the temple and tempted him to test the angels by jumping down, testing God by jumping down. Luke also tells us that Satan showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and promised to give them to him if he would bow down and worship him. But over and over again, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus fought against the temptations of Satan through the Word of God, the truth of God. But all of these details are not included in Mark. And what you can see through the account of Mark, which is, of course, the account of Peter, is that Mark focuses on the significance of the wilderness. He mentions the wilderness twice. And then he also mentions wild animals, which is really hearkening to the dangers of the wilderness. And he's emphasizing that Jesus, being in that wilderness for 40 days, has great significance. In fact, when you hear of 40 days in the wilderness, what's the first thing that should come to your mind? Maybe you think of Elijah, the prophet, as he spent 40 days and 40 nights in fear of Jezebel in the wilderness? Or perhaps you think of the Exodus. After Moses led the Israelites out of captivity, they are, they are in the wilderness at the foot of the mountain. Exodus 24, 18 tells us that Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And we know what happened after that. The Israelites couldn't handle him being gone. They gave in to his, into their temptation and they worshipped a golden calf. Or these 40 days can also remind us of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness because of their sin. So the significance of the wilderness is great here. And Mark is showing us this. And what he's showing us here is that Jesus is the greater Israel. He is the greater human. He is the greater one who has victory over Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Where, where Israel failed, Jesus, the new Israel, prevailed. Even in the danger of these wild animals, and we even see that there was loneliness where the angels had to minister to him. Jesus comes out triumphant. He comes out as the victor. He faced the greatest temptation that any of us could ever imagine. And it shows us that Jesus was in our place. He was in the wilderness for us. In the place of his people, Jesus prevails. If we look back at that verse we looked at in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The temptations of the wilderness. And this continued through the rest of his earthly life. Jesus never gave in to temptation. He was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous. From, from Peter's epistle, Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Or even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Jesus was in the wilderness for you, for all of God's people. This is one of the greatest truths about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. That although he was tempted by the world, tempted by his flesh, meaning his human body, tempted by the devil, just like you and me, he prevailed where we fail. And this has been the plan forever. When God made man and woman in the garden, we were made morally innocent. Morally innocent, but with the ability to choose sin. And of course, God knew we were going to choose sin. And so his plan was before the foundation of time, Ephesians says. His plan was to send himself, to write himself into the story, to live the life that we couldn't live. So that he could defeat the snares of the devil. This is the gospel. It's not just Jesus' death. It's Jesus' life. And this wilderness temptation was, was but a shadow of what was to come. As he ultimately won the battle over sin and death. By his resurrection from the grave. At the cross, the sins of all of God's people, those who would repent, were placed upon Jesus Christ. God poured out his wrath upon his Son. God judged Jesus as guilty. Even though he was sinless, he was not guilty. And the glorious truth is that that all of that righteousness of Jesus' life, as he lived sinlessly, you could even put it this way, as he was earning righteousness, as he was perfectly sinless, all that righteousness of his life at the cross, if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is put on you. You were declared righteous. You are justified. You are clean. You are forgiven forever. We are judged not guilty. Jesus is judged guilty. Jesus won our wilderness. He prevailed where we failed. And so if you don't know Jesus, you don't know this truth. You don't know the gospel. You do not have salvation. And so for us here this morning... We know that we have that truth. We know that we are justified. That should propel us all the more to be going out and sharing this good news. This gospel of good news of Mark, Jesus, the Son of God. And within us, it should produce such worship, such astonishment for who Jesus is. And so today, if you don't know him, we call on you to repent of your sin and to trust in this truth. Believe it. Your eternity depends on it. And more than that, if you don't, you will not be in the presence of God. He is what has been won for you, is his eternal presence forever. You with him. He is on full display here in in Mark's short little report of what's going on here. These are magnificent, massive truths. And we've seen that Jesus is so humbly human. In his humble humanity, he identifies with man, with you, 
He is so powerfully God. He, he should astonish you. He should astonish me every day. He is so victoriously triumphant. He prevails for me. And I pray that these are the meditations upon your heart this week as you reflect on this text that Jesus loved me so much. God loved me so much. He sent his son to live in my place, to identify with me, to be tempted as I am, but also to look at him in his, all his godness, that he astonishes us. And then to look at that triumph. So look at this wilderness. Let it cast your eyes to the cross. Let it cast your eyes to a risen Savior who is coming back, that he prevailed for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these massive truths. Lord, we do confess that uh, we often approach you and your word and your gospel. We often approach you lowly. We're, we're not in awe of you as we should. Lord, we ask that you would produce in us a hunger for you. We thank you for showing us your son here in these few verses, showing us that the plan that you have had before time was that you would have to send yourself. Oh, so beautiful. Showing us that we couldn't do it. This is our message. This is the message of the Bible, the message of Christianity. Every other world religion is teaching us to try to work our way there. But you show us that we couldn't. You had to do it for us. And so we thank you for that. Help us to rejoice in that. I pray that at this time, as we continue in song, that we would respond in spirit and truth, rejoicing in the glory of who you are in the face of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for you. We thank you for your Son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.